Well, this morning is the 16th and penultimate study in uh, Philippians. We're coming into land next week. And in this uh, final section that we're going to be looking at this morning, we have some of the most, lo- most loved verses in the entire Bible. Verses that we put on our walls in our homes in brass or framed in beautiful mounts or even those magnets which adorn our fridges. And uh, the verses that we see this morning are verses that we love quoting and they're verses that many Christians sometimes claim for themselves such as, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There from chapter 4 verse 13. And then verse 19, and my God will supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And um, those two great verses are verses that many, many Christians quote. But I've noticed that sometimes uh, Christians quote those verses, but they have no real idea why Paul wrote them in the first place or what the context is for these verses. And because they're sometimes quoted without a context, uh, they're meant to mean something different than Paul, or for that matter, God, originally intended. Now, the the main reason that Paul wrote his letter, this letter of four chapters that we've been studying for the last four months, um, to the church at Philippi, was to thank the Philippians for a financial gift that they had sent him. Uh, As we know, Paul was under house arrest in Rome, Philippi was about 800 miles away and they sent him a financial gift when Paul was awaiting trial by Caesar by uh, one of their church members, a man called Epaphroditus, or as Dan calls him, Paffy. That's only because he can't say Epaphroditus. Um, And there were other reasons as well for writing this letter, such as um, it appears, uh, and we looked at this last week, that there were quarrels amongst them. Uh, There were two ladies who were at war with each other, Euodia and Syntyche. And uh, Paul writes into this situation in order to get them to agree with each other and reminds the church there at Philippi that they should have the same attitude as Christ had, that Christ looked out for the interests of others and not only for his own interests. Paul also wrote to the Philippians to warn them of this insidious heresy that was doing the rounds in the day, Judaizers, and we're not going to say anything more about that this morning. But the main reason that uh, Paul wrote this letter was that uh, he was thanking them for the financial gift that they had sent through Epaphroditus. So in our verses this morning, Paul reveals that a spirit of generosity, the spirit of generosity that the Philippians demonstrated always brings blessing. Catch that. Okay? That's what we're talking about this morning. The spirit of generosity always brings blessing. Blessing to others, blessing to the giver, and also blessing to God. So we're going to be walking our way through this passage this morning. If you've got your Bibles, open your Bibles and Study it with me. If not, we'll put the verses up on screen for you anyway. So the first thing that we see is generosity blesses others. And in verse 10, Paul says that, uh, I rejoice greatly in the Lord 
that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. Now, Paul was so blessed by this gift that he had received from the Philippian church. And he greatly rejoices in God because of this gift from them. But Paul was not only blessed because of the actual gift. He was also blessed because the Philippian church had Paul in their hearts and minds and encouraged him in this particular way. Now, for many years, uh, from the time that Julie and I were in theological college in the mid-80s, there was an elderly couple from Swansea, which was our home church, and their names were Ken and Jean Evans. And they were an elderly couple, as I say, a very, very godly, prayerful uh, couple. And each year they would send us a Christmas card with five pound in it for the children. And uh, they continued this year after year after year, and right up until the time that they got promoted to heaven themselves. And it was such an encouragement to us, you know, we knew that when the card came from them each year, that there was going to be a five pound in it for the kids. You see, the thing that encouraged us probably far more than any finance was the very fact that this godly, prayerful couple were still thinking about us. They still had a heart for us. They were still wanting to encourage us. And best of all, they were still praying for us. And I think that we've probably all said this at some time or other, haven't we? It's not the gift, but it's the, the thought behind the gift that matters. And I'm sure that was going on here in Philippians chapter 4. In <coughs> verses 10 through to 20, what we have here is Paul's thank you to the Philippians. And as strange as it might seem to us, it seems as though um, Paul saying thank you to the Philippians, it presents him with a little bit of a problem. In fact, he takes 11 whole verses to say thank you for this gift. Whereas on other occasions, he only takes two or three verses to deal with great theological themes. And it seems as though he needs to qualify each statement that he makes here in case somehow in thanking them, he is going to be misunderstood. So we might say, Paul, what's your problem here? Why should saying thank you for a gift that you've received present you with such a problem as it appears to do? And the answer to that, I believe, is that he was very anxious to thank them for his gift. But he was also quite anxious, so it seems, that he had not been waiting impatiently for it. He didn't want to show that 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 was the case or that... Um, he'd been even expecting this expression of kindness from them. And even more so, he didn't want them to think that he was dependent on their generosity or goodness in some way. And in these 11 verses that we have before us this morning, Paul is most tactful. He speaks of his appreciation to his Philippian friends, but he also speaks of his appreciation to the Lord. And he was conscious in thanking them for this gift, that he wasn't in any way at all giving the impression that the Lord wasn't taking care of him. And that's the background of these uh, wonderful verses. And Paul seems to trip over himself in order to not be misunderstood here. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. Let's just stop there for a moment. I, I, I read that and I read that verse and I then imagined uh, Paul writing this and he would have said something like, 
Oops. Um, what have I said? I can't press the delete button because Microsoft Word hasn't been invented yet. Uh, I can't scribble out the last sentence because it would make such a mess on the parchment. So I think I'd better qualify that last statement in case they think that God is not looking after me. And then he goes on into verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now Paul's saying here that he's utterly content. It didn't really matter so much for him whether he was wealthy or whether he was poor, whether he was experiencing the good times or the bad times, because his contentment came from deep within. It came from his relationship with Jesus Christ and not from external circumstances. And instead of having spiritual ups and downs as his circumstances changed, Paul just carried on. He was steady, he was faithful, continuing to serve God. He was not the victim of circumstances, rather he was the victor over those circumstances. He didn't need everything to go his way. He didn't need a healthy bank balance. He didn't need a trouble-free life to be contented. And he didn't lose that inner contentment when the drains got blocked. And he didn't lose that inner contentment when his Wi-Fi wasn't working. Oh, when he dropped his new iPhone down the loo a week after he'd taken out a new contract. And he wasn't insured. You see, he found whatever came his way, whatever was happening to, in his life at the time, he found his contentment in Jesus. And you, you know what? For us as well, God does not want us to be spiritual yo-yos whose happiness is dependent on when good things are happening to us. And if something good is happening, then we're on a high. And if something bad is happening, then we sink into the depths, emotionally and spiritually. Now, some of you might say to me this morning, Steve, you don't really know what I'm going through. How can you say that? You don't know how difficult my situation is, my family life, my job, my circumstances, my finances, my neighbours. Well, let's just stop there for a moment. And let's just say two things, remind ourselves of two things. Firstly, these are not my words. I believe that God intended Paul to write these words, uh, which would then be included in our Bibles to inspire and encourage and challenge Christians down through the ages and encourage us today. And secondly, that we need to remind ourselves when that Paul wrote these words, he was not writing from some ivory tower or some palace somewhere. He was writing from being imprisoned, being chained to probably two Roman guards, one to his right and one to his left. And what he was saying, that in these circumstances, he was still able to say that his life, his happiness, his joy, his contentment was independent of what was happening to him. They weren't the determining factors because... His relationship to Christ, he was able to rise above them all. And Paul knew what it was 
to have plenty. Paul knew what it was to have little. Uh, he'd experienced both ends of the spectrum, but he isn't controlled by outward circumstances. Now, there are two important lessons for us here today. Firstly, contentment, that inner sense of well-being that we have, is not a product of a charmed life. Very, very important. Our contentment, our inner sense of well-being, is not the product of a charmed life. You know, some people feel that they would be far more contented if they could win the lottery. Or if they could get married. Or if they weren't married. <laughs> or if they had a job. Or if they had a different job. Or if their circumstances somehow were different. But wealth and prosperity don't bring that inner contentment. Um, singer George Michael achieved wealth, fame and popularity but it didn't bring him contentment in his song Freedom 90 he wrote these words I was every little hungry schoolgirl's pride and joy and in the song he then continues to come out with the, the, the lyric brand new clothes and a big fat place but concludes sometimes the clothes do not make the man. John D. Rockefeller, who founded the Standard Oil Company, whose net worth is four times that of Bill Gates, was once asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And his answer was just a little bit more than he has. The second thing, another important lesson, is that contentment, that inner sense of well-being, is possible without being wealthy. And the reason for that, it is found in Christ. And Paul here does not allow poverty or excess, a full stomach or an empty stomach, to cause him to lose a hold of Jesus. It didn't matter to him whether he was rich or poor, because he was content through Jesus. I'm sure many of you have heard the story and even sung the hymn of Horatio Spafford, a Chicago lawyer whose four daughters were on a ship traveling across the Atlantic, and mid-Atlantic the ship capsized, and um, he wrote a hymn with these words in it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Verse 13, such a, a well-known, loved verse for all of us. In the Amplified Bible it says, I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength in me. And that is, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. Uh, the message makes it a little bit simpler than that, but still grasps what Paul is saying here. And it says, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States, once said, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. Okay, let's move on. Verse 14, Paul writes, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. It seems that they were the only church here at this time who was supporting Paul. Therefore, you could say that they were exceptional in their giving. Now, this time last year, we had a very long summer series as well, and it was on the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. And in that series, we came across chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Paul tells us about a group of Christians who were the Macedonian Christians. And now the Macedonian Christians would have included the Philippians, because Philippi was a city in this whole province of Macedonia. And this is what Paul tells us about these Macedonian stroke Philippian Christians. He says they were very poor, but they're also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. How about that then? It's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, mainly when the Bible speaks about uh, or gives examples of generosity, it is so often a poor person who is used. For example, the widow who placed her two small copper coins in the collection plate, all that she had to live on. In Luke chapter 7, that that, that lady was an ex-prostitute who broke her alabaster jar of expensive perfume over Jesus in an act of worship. And again, it wasn't someone from high society with lots of money. And then we have in this verse, the Macedonian Christians or the Philippians who were very poor and who were being praised for their generosity. And Paul's got some other things to tell us about these, uh, these Philippians as well. In the next verse, in verse 3, he writes, For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. You see, with them, there was no holding back. They were not miserly or mean, but they were overflowing and generous. And I think I've shown you this before, that... Um, The the words miserable and misery are really extensions of the word miser. I wonder why that is so. But they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. That could... That was just quite incredible when we read this about, as I say, uh, these, these Philippians that had nothing. What else do we read in this chapter? In verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 8. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Again, the uh, Macedonian stroke Philippians didn't do this out of a sense of duty or obligation. It wasn't a burden to them, but it was a, a privilege. And I think that uh, all of us have come across that uh, saying that there are three sorts of giving. There's duty giving, which says I ought to. Grudge giving, which says I have to. And thanksgiving, which says I really want to. And they were people who gave generously out of thankful hearts because they recognized God's grace to them. And what a blessing they were to, uh, to Paul. They recognized that they couldn't do what uh, Paul was doing. They weren't called to be an apostle to the Gentiles and as a missionary. They realized that Paul was called to do that. 
But through their generosity, they supported the work of the gospel. And right at the start of this series, when we were looking at chapter 1, verse 5, it says there, Paul writes to them that they were partners in the gospel. And maybe this morning you're a person and you recognize your own gifts. You recognize that you can never preach a sermon or um, be an evangelist or missionary. You could never lead a church. But I just want to encourage you that you are also partners in the gospel, just as the Philippians were to Paul by having a generous spirit. As so many of you have, I know, of your time and of your talents and also of your finances. The second blessing of generosity, firstly, is generosity blesses others. And secondly, generosity blesses those who give. Now, Paul moves on in this, uh, this passage and he praises the Philippians for their amazing generosity. In verse 17, he writes, I don't say this. Does it say that? No, it doesn't. I'm looking at the, the wrong verse there, sorry. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. And I read that a few times this week, and I thought, what, what's Paul talking about there? I'm not really sure. What is he saying there? That, that more be credited to your account. So when in doubt, I go to another version of the Bible. And uh, in the New Living Translation, it says, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a gift for your kindness. Okay, that's a bit, a bit more helpful. I think the message, actually, on this occasion is, is, is the best, and it really hits the nail on the head. And in the message, it says, not that I'm looking for handouts, but I do want you to experience the blessing that comes from generosity. I like that. That's a great translation. I want you, Philippians, to receive the blessing that comes from generosity. What Paul is saying there very clearly is that generosity of spirit brings God's blessing. You see, in our world, and I'm sure you've noticed this, there's so much focus on oneself, isn't there? You know, it's uh, what can I gain? How might whatever benefit me? How can I be blessed? But God's way is so different to the world's way because we in this world or the world at large, society at large, sees blessing as coming from receiving, accumulating, from gaining. But God's way is the other way around. The blessing comes through giving. Blessing comes from generosity of heart. It isn't through what we gain or accumulate. It's, it, it's through serving others. It's through random acts of kindness. It's through serving others in Christ's name and looking after their needs. And Luke reminds us that Jesus himself once said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it's very interesting, you know, sort of that's a verse which is well known to many Christians but there are many people who hear those words, it is more blessed to give than to receive, and they think that those words are utterly ridiculous. And I suppose at first value they probably are, until you start practicing it. It's only when you start practicing that you can actually begin to understand its wisdom and also its power. And whilst Paul is here materially blessed through the gift he received, 
I think he's even more thrilled that the Philippians are going to be coming into a time of blessing with God and they're going to know open heaven upon their lives spiritually. There's a great verse in the Old Testament in Proverbs. Proverbs 11, verse 24 and 25. It says there, One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will be refreshed. And I believe that there is a connection in the Bible between a generous heart, a generous spirit, and God's blessing. Now, I know that some Christians have taken this too far. And I've come across some Christians who refer, who believe that this verse refers to financial gain. And they have this uh, silly idea that if you put £10 in the offering, you get £100 back somehow through the post that God will see to it that you'll do that. That is not what this says, and the Bible doesn't teach such nonsense. Having said that, those who are people who practice a generosity of spirit will often testify of the creative ways that God meets their needs. But what this verse speaks of, in gaining more, prospering, being refreshed, I believe, is essentially in the spiritual realm, not in the material realm. It's about being spiritually refreshed. It's about living under the conscious blessing of heaven. It's living under the smile of God. How does that work then? It works a little bit like this, I believe. Let me ask you a question. What is it we are doing when we are being generous? Don't, don't shout out the answer, just, just think. What is it we are doing when we are being generous? I think that the answer to that is that we are imitating God who is immensely generous. He is the one who has been so generous to us, he has given us the most amazing gift and most precious gift of all, Jesus. And when any child of God imitates Father God, quite simply, they start to live in a place of God's blessing in their lives. They start living under the smile of God. When a child of God imitates Father God, they put themselves, they position themselves in that place where they start living under the blessing of God. And when we become generous, a couple of things happen. One is a material thing, one is a spiritual. The first, the material thing, is obvious. If you are generous with your money, then at the end of it, you'll have less money. Very profound, that, isn't it? Very, very profound. Uh, you, you, you've, you, you've come here to hear that this morning. You know, it's, uh, it's not rocket science. If you are generous, the material result is you're going to have less money. Okay. But there's a second thing that happens as well. It's a spiritual thing. Because we are saying to God, Lord, money doesn't have a hold on me any longer. Lord, I once lived for material blessings, but that's not so important to me any longer. It hasn't got a hold on me like it once did. Lord, my life has turned a corner. My priority now is Jesus and his kingdom. Lord, I am choosing to put others first. I am choosing to live my life as a blessing to others. You see, the person who is big-hearted and open-handed and generous and who lives to, to, to refresh others, we read, will be refreshed. 
Conversely, looking for the other side of the coin, I've witnessed people who are miserly in spirit, none here, by the way, in this church, because you're all so wonderful. But now and again, I come across people. I'll say, I mean that sincerely, actually, because, you know, the people I know within the context of this church family are amongst the most generous people I've ever met. But people who are miserly in spirit and who are hard-hearted and tight-fisted and small-minded come to poverty. Not material poverty, because some of the richest people on earth are also some of the poorest people on earth, if you get my drift. And if you're a Christian, and I know that probably most of you are here this morning, and if you sense that your spiritual life is in stagnation, and we've all been there, then can I help you? And can I encourage you? The first thing I would say, if you are just in this place of spiritual stagnation, then the first thing I would say to you is reflect upon the amazing and generous God who loves you, who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to wipe away your sins. The indescribable gift, as Paul calls him, Ponder his love to you, the joy of your salvation. Consider how much he loves you. And then, when you have done that, make a decision to be more generous to others. More generous with your time and your energies and your money. And if you're not giving to the work of God or not excelling in your giving, then I would suggest that you talk to God about it. Be courageous. Get out of the boat. Ask God, God, what percentage of my income would you like me to give to your work? How would you like me to do that? And then when you sense that you've got an answer and you've prayed that through, be obedient to that. And then do it regularly. Do it weekly or monthly or whenever your paycheck comes in. And if you haven't considered raising your giving for some years, then talk to God about that too. Now you may say, Steve, you're a bit stronger this morning. Are you sort of on some kind of drive to get more finances into the church? No, I'm not. Not at all. This isn't about Tamworth Elim Church. Not at all. And I can say that with sincerity and honesty with you this morning. This is about the blessing of God. Because I know full well that when we get this area right in our lives, it changes absolutely everything. And uh, I'd go even as far as to say that some Christians are not experiencing spiritual breakthrough in their lives because they've got the wrong attitude to money, which is the number one rival to God for the human heart. Now you may say, well, why do you say that? Well, it's not me that says it. It's Jesus that says that. Because in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I love that uh, old quote from J Billy Graham. He says, If a person gets his attitude to money straight, then it helps to straighten out every other issue in his life. I just want to say this morning, this is not, it really isn't, about 
you know, sort of amounts that you put in the offering or whatever it is you do, or the way that you use your money. It's not about, you know, sort of, there's no sort of vested interest in anything that I'm saying, other than, just as Paul wrote to the Philippians, and the thing that really did bless him was that they were going to be blessed, that they were putting their lives in line with God's purposes. And that is my only motivation this morning. Last week, Dan gave us a great study, study on the first part of uh, chapter 4. And uh, another great verse from uh, chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a very important word in that verse. And it's the, verse, it's, it's the word and. And. Which links this promise of verse 7, the promise of peace with God. Don't we all want peace with God? Yeah, well, peace, God's peace. The word and links that promise of God's peace with what came before in verse 6. What's in verse 6? Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. In other words, if we are rejoicing in the Lord, if we are continually giving our anxious thoughts to Him by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving then we can be assured that God will bring his supernatural peace into our hearts. Okay, that was last week. Go into verse 19, and we find another and. With what has gone on before. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Another great verse, great, wonderful promise. But the promise of this verse is linked to all the previous verses and applies to those who have the same spirit of generosity that the Philippians had. So what Paul is saying here to the Philippians, you met my need, God will meet your needs. You met the one need that I have, God will meet your many needs. You give out of your poverty, God will bless you out of his rich abundance in glory. Now, many of these uh, Christians in Philippi were dirt poor and had nothing. And I can only imagine how God would have uh, honoured their generosity. And there's so much that we don't know. And maybe one day in the future, one day when I get to heaven, I'll, I'll look for some of those Philippian Christians and have a chat with them. And say, do you, do you remember that time ago you, um, you sent Paul, who was in Rome at the time, you, you sent him a gift? I won't ask them what it was. But uh, you sent Paul that gift. Yeah, yeah, remember that time. And then Paul wrote a letter to you, which was in our Bibles. Yeah, remember that too. And Paul said in his letter to you that God would meet your many needs. How did he do that? You see, so much we don't know. We don't know all the answers. But the one thing that we do know that the God that we serve is a generous God. Thirdly, the blessings of generosity. Generosity blesses others. Generosity blesses those who give. And generosity also blesses God. In verse 18, um, we read that these gifts, that they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, 
pleasing to God. Now, this, this verse is full of Old Testament Im- imagery, a fragrant offering. The generous giving hearts of the Philippian Christians was like a sweet smell before God. It's also an acceptable sacrifice. Now, in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, there were two brothers there, Cain and Abel, who brought their offerings to God. Uh, Abel's offering was acceptable, but Cain's wasn't. Why is that? Well, Genesis doesn't tell us why that is, and we have to wait until we get to near the end of the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, and we read, By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. So what made Abel's offering acceptable? It was faith. Cain, I imagine, brought it out of a mere formality. And because of that, it was rejected by God. And Abel offers here his faith, which means it was for him a heart thing. It meant something to him. It was a worshipful response to God. And Paul says that the Philippians brought this acceptable sacrifice to God by providing for the needs of Paul. It wasn't some mere formality for them. It wasn't some token gesture. But it was out of the fullness of their hearts. It was an act of worship. And it was pleasing to God. I think we all know that there are two types of givers. There's the reluctant giver. But then there's the giver that we read in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians who is the cheerful giver. And you see, having a, a generous spirit never ever focuses on the amount, but it always focuses on the right heart attitude. And we live generously because we have been touched by his generosity. And I would say to you today that if you only ever give because you feel obligated to do so, please, please, please don't give. There's no blessing in that. I'm very sincere about that. I'm not sure if you've heard too many pastors encouraging church congregations not to give. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying to you this morning. Because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. But why does God love a cheerful giver? God loves a cheerful giver because he's one himself. The Lord does not give reluctantly or miserly, but he's overflowing. He's generous And he desires that we should be as well. Would you stand with me and let us pray together, please? Band, if you'd like to come back. Thank you. Let's just pray. Let us be, just ponder upon the words of this chapter this morning and how they might affect us. The blessings of generosity. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the lessons of this chapter today. We thank you for these scriptures. We also thank you, Lord, for the example of the Philippians. Although they were were poor, it was out of joyful and generous hearts, Lord, they gave. And I pray, Lord, that we, just as they, might be generous to the core. That, Lord, we will not be tight-fisted, but we will be open-handed 
that we'll not be miserly, Lord, but we will be big-hearted with all the resources and the time and the talents entrusted to us. I pray, Lord, that we will use our lives as a blessing to others. And more importantly, Lord, that everything that we say and do and the way that we serve you might just be a blessing to you. I pray, Lord, that we might live under an open heaven, that we might experience your blessing upon us and your smile upon us as we choose to imitate your kindness and your generosity and your grace. Amen.